0: Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org.
1: Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to CSIS, we have a very special event in store for you. I'm Paul Schwartz and I will be moderating our discussions. Today we're going to hear from the authors of an important new report which offers fresh ideas for tackling some of the most challenging and contentious issues in Russian-Western relations, namely those arising from the ongoing competition between Russia and the West over the fate of the former Soviet states in Eastern Europe and in the Caucasus. The Western vision of a new regional order underpinned by NATO and EU enlargement has been vigorously contested by Moscow, which has been promoting its own vision of a Russian led order based on the Collective Security Treaty Organization, its own military alliance, as well as the Eurasian Economic Union. This clash of visions and the relentless competition that it has engendered have sparked serious crises and conflicts in the region over the last two decades, most notably in Ukraine and Georgia. These conflicts have also created major economic and security challenges for the the countries in the region, including most notably Ukraine, but also Moldova, Belarus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, which are the six countries which are the subject of this study. These conflicts also lie at the very heart of the current breakdown in relations between Russia and the West. Faced with these pressing geopolitical challenges, there have been remarkably few concrete proposals for how to address the core issues in this dispute. That is why this new report is so important. Titled, A Consensus Proposal for a Revised Regional Order, this proposal was devised by three groups of experts convened by the RAND Corporation and the friedrich ebert Stiftung's Regional Office for Cooperation and Peace in Europe. The report offers a comprehensive approach for addressing the core economic and security challenges facing post-Soviet Eurasia and Europe. It contains detailed proposals on three areas, proposals for revising the regional security architecture, for promoting greater economic integration, and resolving various regional conflicts. We are pleased to have with us today four of the leading authors and contributors of this report who are prepared to discuss the key aspects of their proposal. First, I am pleased to introduce to my right Dr. Samuel Cherup. He is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation and an expert on the political economy and foreign security policies of Russia and the former Soviet states. Also with us today is Dr. Alexandra Dinas. She's a research associate at the regional office for cooperation and peace in Europe at the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. She specializes in the foreign and political economy of Russia and the post-Soviet space. We're also fortunate to have with us today Vasil Filipchuk, who is a senior advisor at the International Center for Policy Studies in Ukraine. And he is an expert on Ukrainian foreign policy and European integration, and has held many high-level positions in the Ukrainian government. Joining us as well is Dr. Yulia Nikitina, who is an associate professor and a research fellow at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations, (MGIMO), where she specializes in the politics of security in Eurasia with a focus on regional organizations. Rounding out our panel is Dr. Jeffrey Mankoff, who is the deputy director of the Russia and Eurasia program here at CSIS and an expert on the foreign and security policy of Russia and the former Soviet states. Jeff, who did not participate directly in the project, is going to provide additional commentary on the report. As always, we wish to thank the Carnegie Corporation of New York, whose generous support has made this event possible. As I understand it, uh, each of the co-authors is going to deliver a a short series of presentations, after which Jeff will provide commentary, and then we'll open up to Q&A. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Sam.
2: Thanks, Paul, Um, and thank you to uh, all of you for coming. Um, uh, Paul actually did a lot of my work for me, so I'm going to be very brief. Um, I'll just mention uh, a couple of uh, things in introduction before handing it over to my colleagues, who will get into the substance. Uh, this is not was not your uh, run of the mill uh, think tank project. Our, our intent was not to devise immediately applicable policy recommendations to to governments that they could you know pick up and try to implement today. Instead, we were trying to anticipate what the outcome of a negotiation. Could be if it were to begin. So it's a bit of an abstraction. Uh, And within each of our three uh, groups, we all had to make compromises to find common ground. Um, We also operated within each of our three groups, the one on the security architecture, economic integration, and regional conflicts, on the assumption that the other two processes were operating in parallel. So we assumed that. uh, because the the nature of the dispute has become, these issues have become so interlinked that the solution to them would have to also be interlinked. Uh, So we're talking about three parallel processes because for example, it's hard to imagine uh, an agreement on the security architecture if there isn't a uh, significant progress, if not resolution on regional conflicts um, and perhaps vice versa. Um, so the three chapters are therefore interrelated because we made assumptions about what was going on in the other tracks, um, but the individual groups operated independently uh, and really only saw the other uh, products of those uh, other groups when the, when the drafts were finished. The authors, therefore, uh, only bear direct responsibility for the working group in which they participated, but we all had the opportunity to review the text uh, and all of the three groups um, plus our sort of steering committee uh, uh, agreed to have their names associated with it. Uh, by consensus, we do not mean that everyone necessarily agrees with everything in the, in the report. In fact, you know, I could name a number of things that I disagree with. Um, but it meant that we all thought that these ideas were an important starting point to a conversation uh, that we'd like to begin with this project. Um, and I think that's probably, overall, uh, the details I think are very important, but the bigger picture, that might be the most valuable contribution. I don't think any of us think it's ideal, um, but uh, we all agreed that it's uh, an important opening contribution to the debate and something that we had not uh, been able to see in other contexts. Um, So I'll uh, mention a few caveats before turning it over to uh, Yulia. So this is not, again, a proposal that is likely, and we recognize this, to be implemented in the current political environment. Uh, It is more of a thought experiment, a description of what might be possible, intended to foster discussion, Uh, and it's just one vision of a way forward. We're eager to hear your views on what might be another vision of the way forward, but we start with the premise that the status quo is not working for any of the major actors involved, and an alternative uh, that could uh, produce more security and prosperity in the region would be uh, um, preferable. So um, Yulia, who was a member of the steering committee, has agreed to uh, present the work of the uh, security architecture group, and then Alexandra, who is the uh, co-chair of the um, Economic Integration Group, will talk about their proposals. Uh, finally, Vasil, um, uh, who, w- along with me, was involved in the regional conflicts group, will uh, will present uh, the ideas that we came up with. So with that, I'll hand it over to Yulia.
3: Thank you, Sam. Uh, well, yeah, that was a disclaimer. And indeed, uh, th- that's more a compromise proposal, the least common denominator, and not so much a- uh, consensus uh, proposal, and what's more, uh, well, these days everyone is afraid of spoilers, so now I will give you a, a spoiler that, you know, uh, official Russia probably wouldn't support this uh, proposal, so now you will be listening even more attentively to our um, parts uh, to be um, ready to provide counter-arguments probably. Well, hopefully we really want to have some uh, criticism in order to uh, develop our argumentation. Uh, So generally, our basic assumption is that uh, now the situation in Eurasia is in a deadlock, and we need to find a way out. And I will very briefly present uh, the findings of the group. Unfortunately, I didn't participate in the debates, but uh, I will present it as I was a member of the steering committee. Uh, And uh, generally, we assume uh, that now there is a lack of communication uh, between the major uh, parties. uh, And uh, there is a need to create a mechanism for communication. And we have uh, four uh, suggestions how to uh, create such a mechanism. So we call it uh, regional security consultation. So it all starts with level one. Uh, regional security consultations. Uh, That is something between, let's say, group of seven, group of 20, informal clubs, and ad hoc meetings. So it's not an institution. It's not uh, something like ad hoc meetings. Uh, that's a series of regional security consultations who would be members of those, the United States, Russia, the European Union, and uh, the so-called in-between states, uh, states of common neighborhood, Russia and the uh, European Union, and any OIC state, actually, if, uh, It believes that it has to discuss something with uh, the US, uh, Russia, and the European Union. Uh, So that's level one, architecture. Level uh, two, norms. We believe that um, it is important uh, to introduce norms uh, of behavior for the participating uh, parties. And um, for the major powers, they have to um, commit to try to achieve consensus before implementing any changes to the security architecture. We understand that most probably it will be very difficult to reach such a consensus, but major powers have to commit that they will try to. They will at least meet and try to achieve consensus. Uh, And uh, they commit not to threaten the existing security architecture, including both NATO and the collective security treaty organization, for example. Uh, And uh, the second uh, dimension of norms is that uh, countries in between can uh, adopt the so-called third way, non-aligned status. Uh, And that's their choice. They may adopt it or not. That's up to them. But if they do adopt it, it means that they will get security guarantee from the major powers, uh, that they will not try to compromise their non-aligned status. Uh, Then, in order to support this, uh, we introduced the concept of uh, mutual security guarantees supported by confidence and security building uh, measures. So, uh, as to the... uh, Excuse me. uh, Okay. Uh, So, uh, mutual security guarantees means that... uh, major states have to politically commit uh, themselves to uh, abide by these agreements. We understand that it's very difficult to make these agreements legally binding. Uh, that's the major problem of international relations in general, legally binding agreements and uh, enforcement. But it is in the interest of all the parties to commit themselves simply because the alternative is uh, a deadlock that we have. Now. So that's why we believe that it's still feasible. Uh, but we expect some criticism on this point. Uh, and um, uh, we think that uh, the uh, confidence and security building measures would be important, such as uh, for guaranteeing powers, no stationing of forces on the territory of the in- between states that adopt the third way uh, non alignment. or or no covert intelligence gathering or other hostile activities against signatories of the arrangement on the territory of in-between states. Or uh, something like uh, ban on exercises in the uh, zone of, uh, like, between the alliances. So we have a very detailed list of uh, measures Uh, And we believe that uh, this complex might work. So architecture norms, mutual security guarantees, plus confidence and security building measures. But of course, it wouldn't be possible without the uh, economic cooperation and the specific uh, security measures that will be discussed by Vasil. Thank you.
0: Distinguished audience, let's cover the economy, the group that I had the pleasure to co-chair and participate Well, as Sam was already mentioning and as Julia mentioned, uh, citing the least common denominator, our group was very contentious as well. So you need to imagine really tough negotiations. We had one member who used to be the EU negotiator for the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement with Ukraine, which did not uh, come to happen, as you know. The Russian counterpart had a totally different opinion from the EU counterpart. We have a Moldovan in our group and Armenian. So very contentious discussions on what seems to be a fairly technical aspect of a regional order, namely the economy. But in fact, it's being politicized and it's a very difficult and, and uh, important piece of the puzzle as well. Why does the economy matter? Well, um, first of all, we have witnessed in the case of Ukraine, but also other so-called in-between countries that economic relations can very easily become a source of friction. And the purpose of this proposal for an alternative regional economic integration um, is that those relations, economic relations, cease to become a source of friction and to the contrary that they become the source of prosperity, because this is ultimately what... Um, what this proposal for regional order is about. It's about security and about higher prosperity for the member countries. So what do I mean or what do we mean by frictions in the region from the economic perspective? You may be well aware that membership in different customs unions is not possible. So one country cannot be a member of two different customs unions. And we have two of them in the region. We have the EU, obviously, and we have the Eurasian Economic Union, which is an integration organization um, around Russia and other four member states, uh, which is Armenia, Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. Well, two members, uh, two, two in between countries, namely Armenia and Belarus, are members of the Eurasian Economic Union and thus cannot Uh, bilaterally negotiate their own trade arrangements. So this kind of places limitations um, on the countries. The same goes, by the way, vice versa. Those countries who signed deep and comprehensive free trade agreement with the EU, which is Moldova, Ukraine, and Georgia, they cannot become members of the Eurasian Economic Union or it's hard for them to have... um, Um, deeper economic ties with Russia and other members of the Eurasian Economic Union. So there's friction, there's lost economic opportunity, um, and and, and, and there are kind of opportunities that are foregone. We have looked at trade statistics, and trade statistics shows very clearly for the in-between region that they depend on trade both with Russia and the European Union. And I think this is a very important underlying kind of basic fact that we need to keep in mind, that those countries need trade with both East and West for for their full development and prosperity. So our proposal. We know about the status quo. We know that it's uh, suboptimal. What's the proposal? It consists of three parts. First is um, uh, enhancement of multi-directional trade relations, which means trade relations with both East and West, so the EU and the Eurasian Economic Union, easement of of tensions in trade. Second, trilateral consultations. By trilateral, we mean, again, the EU, the Eurasian Economic Union, and the in-between countries. And finally, norms, governing behavior between the blocs. And I will elaborate a little bit on each of those points. Uh, Obviously, the core of the proposal is the multi-directional trade relations, and here we had some proposals targeting both this macro level, so to speak, of cooperation between the EU and the Eurasian Economic Union, and some more targeted measures for each of the in-between countries. So on this macro level, obviously we need some kind of dialogue and cooperation between the EU and the Eurasian Economic Union, which is currently de facto not the case. The reasons are political, it's uh, all the difficulties in Russia-West relations in the wake of the conflict in and around Ukraine, you know all that. What would be helpful? Helpful would be a permanent task force dealing with harmonization of technical standards and trade procedures, transit, um, trade transit. Such permanent task force would lead to uh, approximation between those different standards. It would ease trade and ultimately reduce the transaction costs for countries in between. There are multiple studies showing that there would be sufficient and substantial benefits for trade uh, if such an agreement or cooperation between the EU and the Eurasian Economic Union came about. In the very long term, it can be an uh, FTA, a free trade zone, but this is certainly a very long term uh, objective if there were a political decision on, on both sides to do so, and it would require Belarus membership in the WTO. In the meantime, some less ambitious framework agreement would be thinkable, for example, a mutual declaration that the European Union and the Eurasian Economic Union are not in conflict, acknowledge each other's existence, and want to enhance trade uh, between each other. As for the individual measures, I won't go too much into detail, just to draw your attention to a few interesting cases. Georgia doesn't have diplomatic relations with Russia, as you know, but has been pursuing gradual normalization of trade with Russia since 2012 and is now even a member of uh, Commonwealth of Independent States Free Trade Zone, which is very important not only for Georgia's economy, who also depends substantially on export of some of its products to Russia, for example, wines or mineral water or fruit, traditionally very popular in Russia, but also it's important for Armenia Because Armenia is the member of the Eurasian Economic Union and would have been isolated without the opportunity to channel its goods through Georgia. So Georgia's membership in CIS uh, free trade zone is very important for Armenia, who depends on this transit. Um, Maybe a word on Armenia as well. Armenia has signed SEPA, Comprehensive and Enhanced Partnership Agreement with the EU. As you may be aware, instead of its association agreement with the EU, which did not work out, let me put it this way, for political reasons, Armenia did the U-turn and joined the Eurasian Economic Union instead. But in our group, there were discussions considering this a very good example of some flexibility and pointing to the direction of possibility of multidirectional trade relations, having deep relations with Russia and the countries of the Eurasian Economic Union, and at the same time, having some enhanced, deeper ties with the EU. So this points to the right direction, as we thought. Trilateral uh, consultations, the second part of the proposal. Just briefly, trilateral means EU, the Eurasian Economic Union, the respective country in between. In such trilateral format, disputes could be resolved, for example, around phytosanitary standards or some other trade disputes, but also (coughs) larger issues, uh, such as, for example, change of uh, trade arrangements in the future. If somebody wants to enter or exit a block or somehow change trade uh, arrangements, this country could address the trilateral consultation. It's not a must, it's a possibility. Again, voluntarily, uh, we believe that this would ease tensions and um, we have examples from the past where this worked well. For example, when the EU back in 2004 was enlarging towards the east. There were consultations with Russia and many contentious issues, which were mostly technical in nature, for example, transit to Kaliningrad or tariffs for aluminum and other stuff. They were addressed through such consultations. So this would be advisable to do that again in the future. Finally, the last component of the proposal in the economic realm, norms governing the behavior Well, the first norm would be to accept, mutually accept, the legitimacy of the composition of the trading blocs, so kind of to acknowledge that the Eurasian Economic Union is there, that the EU is there, and to pledge, so to speak, not to poach uh, members, so to respect the choice of the in-between countries where they want to be members and uh, not to push them to exit or um, uh, enter a, a new alliance. So taken together those three components, the multi-directional trade relations, trilateral consultations if disputes arise or economic arrangements uh, want to be changed in the future and norms governing the behavior between the blocks, we believe that this is a good foundation to address the economic woes of the region and also to enhance the prosperity and lay the foundation for both addressing the security architecture um intricacies and of course the resolution of uh, regional conflicts and i hand over to vasil
4: thank alexandra thank you julia as i said we had three different groups of uh, experts uh, from different countries. Each group is its own composition, atmosphere, relationship. And you can imagine what was in a group uh, which was assigned to talk about regional conflicts, where you have on one side uh, a Russian representative and on the other side Ukrainian, Georgian, and Moldovan. Uh, so emotions were not just high. Uh, uh, sometimes we just thought we can't agree about anything. Uh, but at the end, we all uh, made some uh, efforts. Um, of course, uh, our Russian uh, counterpart killed plenty of my uh, nice ideas. I couldn't but every time raise an issue that they, they must return Crimea and get out with their armament. Uh, they, uh, they strongly disagreed. And, uh, at the end, we uh, came to the lowest common denominator, which was that we must, first of all, to talk about conflict management as long as we uh, are not, as we don't see a settlement on the ridge. And on on the basis of efficient conflict settlement, we can talk about conflict uh, conflict management, we can talk about conflict settlement. So what we agreed were three, basically three points. Point one, people first, rephrasing your uh, president. We should care in our efforts uh, in conflict management about people who are living there people who are not responsible for mistakes of politicians, people who are not responsible for uh, uh, diplomats incapable to propose something which would settle the uh, conflict. So we should care about pensioners, kids, who happen to be uh, victims of these conflicts. And for that, uh, we proposed a list of uh, enhanced, multilateral, status-neutral conflict measure, uh, measures to reduce pain. Pain reduction was uh, our agreement number one. Uh, Point two, more trust. More trust through risk reduction measures, mainly in the military area, Uh, understanding communication which would uh, avoid any worsening of situation, uh, renewal of uh, military actions, and so on. And third point on which we all agreed is more international engagement, Uh, we need to see renewed international commitment, uh, to make additional incentives for conflict settlement, uh, conflict eff- effective conflict management, and uh, efforts into reconstruction uh, of uh, consequences of regional conflicts. So, on each of these three points, we presented a table. Some of you who, who, who could see the book uh, could look at these tables and list of proposals. I think. Uh, for uh, practitioners in uh, foreign affairs, for diplomats, when they have uh, a visit uh, coming or uh, their bosses are screaming, give us some ideas what to do. It would be very helpful instrument where they could see a long list of different measures. It's not country specific measures. Uh, Some of these measures we uh, just have taken from experience of other conflict settlement. It was very interesting to analyze a specific Moldovan experience. A settlement of Transnistrian conflict in Moldova provided us a very interesting uh, example of how conflicts, while being not settled, become really convenient, if I may say so. No one cares about Transnistrian conflict if you talk about citizens of this country. Only one percent of Moldovans consider that Transnistrian conflict is priority for them. They just don't see any uh, threat from this conflict. They can travel contact line for uh, Sunday market to to, to buy potatoes uh, in another site. No one cares if uh, car plates uh, with registration from another site are uh, on on their own territory. So this conflict is convenient. Of course, it's very far from ideal. I would wish uh, conflict is settled and Transnistria is an integral part of Moldova, but realities are that it's not. So we studied uh, good uh, examples of conflict management in Moldova, in Georgia, by the way, also very interesting example of uh, conflict settlement. Uh, while looking at this example, sometimes me as Ukrainian, a country which uh, 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 is a victim of Russian invasion in 2014, annexation of Crimea, and uh, conflict uh, in Donbas, uh, where we have 13,000 people died uh, because of uh, actions of pro-Russian separatists. Of course, it's, it's unthinkable to imagine some of uh, actions which were uh, in, implemented in Moldova. For example, uh, integration of uh, road and rail networks or a simple thing, um, uh, recognition of car plates. In Ukraine, to imagine uh, a car with car plate Donetsk People's Republic, is unthinkable. This car would not move even uh, 200 meters. Uh, in Moldova, they are okay with this. Uh, even more uh, Moldovan representatives, uh, they share uh, their own um, uh, experience of uh, positive discrimination when companies from uh, this uh, separatist entity uh, have better treatment than their own, their own companies, in order to ensure that they feel they belong to, to the same country, and so on. So, uh, in our case, whenever they we see shelling, even now um, it's still unthinkable. But in case if we have to accept the fact that we cannot settle the problem in the nearest future, what to do with this? Ideally, of course, tomorrow Minsk agreement should be implemented uh, and uh, Donbass should be back to Ukraine. But if not, what should we do? So we have a, a long list <coughs> of pain reduction measures. Uh, We also divided them in different groups, uh, economic, humanitarian, people to people. Some of them are very distant. Uh, Some of them must be done today. Some of them are done, for example, if we talk about um, payment of pensions and uh, facilitating of access to pension system. It's not uh, uh, fair for people who worked all their life and paid their pension contributions and then happened to be in a territory controlled by separatists or in Crimea controlled by Russia, they are not responsible for that. They may have their pensions. So uh, we proposed a number of actions in this uh, direction. Uh, The same about uh, people-to-people contacts. Uh, For example, again, experience of Moldova when uh, uh, sportsmen from uh, Transnistrian separatist enclave uh, participate in national competitions under Moldova flag uh, and and participate in Eurovision Song Contest uh, under Moldova uh, name. So it's all is just very interesting and positive uh, examples of how to make life not miserable, uh, not bad, even if you still have a conflict on the table. So another priority, less risks. How to do it? Mainly and first of all through uh, um, uh, more efforts uh, in military-to-military contacts. And you have a long list of uh, measures which we see in communication area, uh, in area of transparency and restraint of uh, military forces. We talk about Uh, appointment of uh, uh, contacts between military uh, offices, military-to-military hotlines, um, uh, consultations on unusual military military activities, warning messages uh, about preparation of certain military activities, um, withdrawal of uh, certain heavy military equipment, and so on. A special important issue for for my country, and we all agreed with this, is divining. We have very often... Sometimes every week I report about someone being killed of mine in the area. Uh, In Eastern Ukraine, I think we have one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, area full of mines in Europe and maybe even beyond Europe. So uh, here, whatever is situation with uh, conflict settlement, something must be done to reduce risks and to make uh, this area less, (coughs) uh, less uh, threatening for human beings' lives. S- on the third uh, uh, part on a stronger international engagement, of course, um, um, I see here, Ambassador Taylor, one year ago we had uh, a uh, very interesting event uh, here in Washington on the uh, possibility of international uh, peacekeeping operations. And we promoted, uh, promoted uh, an idea of international interim administration for Donbass. As for me, it would be the best way to uh, bring peace uh, as as uh, soon as possible to Donbass and to facilitate implementation of peace agreements. Uh, it was not accepted. However, we all agreed that international peacekeeping presence is strongly... Uh, um, recommended under certain conditions. For example, um, you all know what is uh, Minsk agreements, and Minsk agreements should lead to elections. And we have OSCE. Uh, OSCE is monitoring uh, situation on the ground, and OEC, according to European standards, must verify whether elections aren't free and fair. So who should organize these elections for OSCE monitoring mission to assess was it free and fair or not? Obviously, it can, but it can be done neither by uh, uh, unrecognized uh, entities. It cannot be done by, by Russians. It cannot physically done by uh, Ukrainians. So it should be only international entity, like, for example, well-known uh, instrument, which is UN uh, electoral mission, which could uh, be neutral, which could come prepare a voting process uh, which could be impartial, ensure equal access, all the standards. And after this, OEC would make judgment whether elections were uh, free and fair. So such kind of uh, uh, ideas uh, were agreed and welcomed, and we think uh, there is a good potential for international uh, presence to be be there. But not only in this. Uh, During our discussion, we uh, spent a lot of time uh, Thinking, what should be incentives? How you, even if there is no settlement on the uh, geopolitical level, it would be very good if it is, but even if there is not, what are incentives from the international community for parties uh, to cooperate? And of course, we came here with a number of proposals, for example, reconstruction assistance. We think that parties, international community, can propose to uh, uh, war torn regions. concepts, ideas, uh, like, for example, uh, we studied experience of Balkans, where EU um, established an agency which successfully contributed to reconstruction, and the same can be done in Ukraine. Of course, there's a number of preconditions. Number one is uh, there should be no shelling anymore. There should be a sustainable uh, ceasefire. But in case if it is achieved, it can be also an incentive to achieve this ceasefire if... Uh, Uh, this proposal uh, uh, is on the table. So there should be more economic carrots as well as sticks uh, for, for entities and uh, clear understanding that in case if we have progress uh, in uh, uh, conflict management, uh, uh, everyone could win those who are now in not-controlled territories, those who are on the other side, and the national community in general. But in just some elements from, from what we discussed, uh, I'm ready to discuss them and, and answer your questions as well. Thank you. Do you want to sum up now? Yeah.
2: If you don't mind so um, that we just threw a lot of information at you uh, there uh, I should note that I have a bunch of copies of the uh, physical book here uh, for those of you who can w- wait uh, until the end uh, That then I'm happy to distribute it's also freely available online uh, if I to give you the uh, one-minute overview of what you just heard. You heard there's four pieces of the security architecture proposal. It was uh, regional security consultations, agreement on norms of behavior, the third-way status option, and associated multilateral security guarantees and confidence and security building measures. On the economic integration piece, we heard about multi-directional trade relations measures, trilateral consultations, and norms of behavior. And finally, uh, Vasil mentioned our agreement on uh, enhanced conflict management measures, a recommitment to conflict settlement, uh, and incentives to the parties to engage. So uh, these are all. Um, the contention is uh, a, a potential, uh, potentially viable alternative to the status quo that would be. Uh, beneficial for all parties involved that would provide a degree of uh, stability to the broader Russia West competition. It's not going to make that competition go away, but it could uh, stabilize it and would um, provide significant security and prosperity benefits to uh, the, the states caught in between. Now, um, I will uh, just hopefully, so that we can get into the details and, and some discussion of the specifics, and hear maybe any of your ideas about alternatives to the status quo. Uh, talk a little bit about some of the uh, objections we 've heard in previous presentations of this report, so maybe we can get those out of the way uh, and uh, and talk about something else. Um, so uh, one thing we hear often is an objection to the term in between states uh, and that it denies these countries agencies. Uh, I should say we had a lot of debate about that term in in our in our groups uh, and uh, the the term derives from the idea of being caught in between, in other words, that these states are not necessarily party to the Russia West uh, competition, but they are suffering as a result of it. Um, And the idea of the project is, in fact, to return them agency, uh, not to deny them. Another um, uh, objection we often hear is that uh, before doing anything, you must assign blame for past wrongs and decide who is guilty for the status quo that we have today. Um, Usually someone has a particular guilty party in mind when they make that (laughs) comment. varies, of course, uh, depending on which uh, where you are. Um, but uh, the premise that we started from was, in fact, that you don't need to agree on who was uh, guilty for uh, past sins in order to come to agreement about improving the status quo and providing additional stability and security. There are countless examples from the Cold War when uh, irreconcilable rivals um, were able to find agreements that, uh, that provided stability. Uh, without um, uh, agreeing about why the problem itself initially was created. Um, In terms of the work on the regional conflicts, we're often told, well, every conflict is unique. How could you possibly propose universal solutions? Well, our approach was to offer a menu of options that could or could not be used depending on the appropriate circumstances for the individual conflict. So we, of course, acknowledge that every conflict is, in fact, unique Um, but that having a menu of available options, as was still mentioned, would be beneficial. Uh, We also often get the accusation that this is some sort of new Yalta agreement with big states imposing their will on smaller ones. I think you've probably heard the word optional or option or offer uh, a number of times from my colleagues. Uh, That was uh, intentional. Um, uh, There's nothing here that would uh, entail uh, any state uh, having any choices denied to it. It's, in fact, offering them new ones um, and finally, uh, one uh, objection we often hear is about, it's a general one, which is why should we make we, our side, depending on which side you're on, it uh, differs, make any concessions? The other side will just pocket those concessions and uh, take advantage of our willingness to do so. And uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons for this belief, of course. Uh, recent history has is, is, uh, uh, created a lot of reasons for that kind of mistrust. Um, But I think the idea here is that we have a means of testing the proposition that under different circumstances the behavior of of the parties involved could be different. Um, And so if you truly believe that we're dealing with, uh, depending on which side you're on, the other side being an uh, uh, intent on regional domination at all costs, uh, then we should pretty much all go home uh, and, uh, and forget about trying to improve the situation because it, it would be impossible. Um, if you at least think that there's a potential that uh, we could be in a situation where under different circumstances parties behavior could be different, uh, this is one potential means of testing that proposition. Um, so with that I'll turn it over to Jeff and I look forward to his uh, remarks. Okay, thanks Sam and thanks to all of our
5: presenters. Um, First of all, let me give you guys credit for taking on what I'm sure is a uh, politically unpopular task, one that I imagine you've gotten lots of feed- of uh, negative feedback on in, in a number of different places. Um, I'm not going to pile on. I have criticisms, but I'm going to try and engage the um, the project on on its own terms. Um, I think it's, it's really important that you characterize this as a, as a thought experiment uh, or, since working with German partners, a uh, Gedanken experiment. And, um, because I think one of the big challenges that a vision like this is going to have is how do you go from the conceptual to the implementation. right? I think if we were having this conversation in 1990 or 1991 um, at the end of the Cold War, where the entire nature of the European and transatlantic security architecture was It was in flux. Um, It would have been, and in fact, there were these kind of conversations about, can you create some entirely new framework for for managing these relationships? And of course, the answer was, not really, um, for a variety of reasons. but that was a particularly fluid moment, and the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union was responsible for creating that that fluidity. I think one of the challenges we face now is that that kind of fluidity doesn't exist um, obviously, the status quo is suboptimal in a lot of ways for most of certainly the as you characterize them in between countries, but in a lot of ways for countries on either side of the in-between as well. But for most of them, the costs of the status quo are largely bearable. Um, And as you said, there's a tendency to uh, want to assign blame elsewhere, to um, think that uh, there's no need to compromise, to think that um, in some way the, the status quo can go on, and that at the very least the alternatives are worse, that in some way they require Uh, giving up on some kind of of dearly held principle. Um, And I'm not sure that the perception of risk is sufficient, maybe it is in in some of the in-between countries, to convince political elites on a large scale to uh, abandon the the positions that they've held on, on the nature of this architecture for a long time. There's another issue here, too, that I think differentiates where we are today from, say, at the end of the Cold War and if we were having this conversation 30 years ago. Um, and that is there is a sense in which the clash, the confrontation between, let's say, Russia and the West um, isn't only a geopolitical clash. It's not only about territory uh, or institutions, but increasingly, and I think you hear this in, in the discussion in, in Washington increasingly, um, it's characterized as a conflict of ideology or of governance models. And obviously, we had agreements during the Cold War uh, between ideologically uh, opposed blocs, states, um, but that ideology made the process more difficult. Now I'm not sure that I entirely embrace the idea of there being an ideological conflict today. I think certainly it's less pronounced than it was during the Cold War. But I think there is an element within which it's hard to envision how you get some kind of agreed upon um, uh, framework for reconstructing the regional architecture that is basically neutral on some of these ideological questions that doesn't address uh, questions of governance. Because I think what uh, people in a lot of these countries perceive is not only that they are being pulled in different directions, they're being pulled east and west in terms of, you know, did they sign an agreement with the European Union or with the Eurasian Economic Union, but also that they're being presented and in some ways coerced into adopting incompatible governance models, um, whatever you want to sort of characterize them as. And so, how do you address this problem of maintaining the Political sovereignty, the internal sovereignty um, of these countries. How do you provide reassurance against what I think a lot of their uh, elites and populations see as attempts to undermine their um, their political system? Is is this approach basically uh, neutral on the question of is democracy or democratization um, a good thing, Uh, or we are are we agnostic about that question? Um, Another issue I would sort of push you to consider is, in, in a similar vein, is what happens if political change occurs in one or more of these countries? Um, it certainly requires uh, political buy-in from governments and, and elites more broadly to participate in uh, this, this menu of uh, of proposals that you laid out. Um, somebody mentioned uh, legally binding guarantees and, and the difficulties that those present. I mean, one of the difficulties they present is that governments and their priorities change. So what happens if you have a government headed by a person, let's call him Viktor Yanukovych, who signs up to one of these uh, proposals, and then a couple of years later is turfed out of office for one reason or another, and the new government comes in and is headed by somebody who has a completely different view of where his or her country fits within this regional architecture. How how does this structure manage and maintain the sovereignty of these countries in between if they decide at some point that they want to change their mind? And and so, you know, in that sense, you know, I I, I take your point that we're not recreating the Yalta agreement here, but I I do think that, you know, one of the characteristics of the Yalta system was that it kind of attempted to freeze in amber or freeze in time, um, a settlement that was uh, relevant as it existed uh, in the 1940s, but over time pressures built up against that system, people revolted against the idea that they were being deprived of the ability to make other choices. Um, and that emergence of, of other ideas, the, the pressure for something different, was one of the things that contributed to the breakdown of that system. Um, and then just a couple of more small things that you know it might be worth thinking about or I'd be curious to hear your, your response to. Um, I think it was uh, Vasil who who talked about trust and the importance of of trust. And I think that certainly uh, is true. Can you do this without trust? You know, is is trust a precondition or is trust something that you only get to once you've been able to go through this this kind of iterative process of of developing new um, arrangements and, and new institutions? And can you develop those new institutions and arrangements in the absence of trust? And then finally, where does the US fit into all of this? Um, We're having this conversation in Washington, of course, Um, and I think people here would be interested in hearing about, you know, how the U.S. does or doesn't fit into these visions. This is a very much a, uh, this is a, a European Eurasian order more than it is a transatlantic order. Um, but obviously the United States is going to have interests and uh, ideas about what happens in a part of the world, particularly given its uh, involvement in, in NATO. Um, and so where does the U.S. fit? What role does the U.S. have in this process? What kind of does the U.S. have and how does this all affect U.S. interests? Um, let me stop there, but again, uh, thank you guys for uh, taking on what uh, is a, a really ambitious and, and probably in a lot of ways thankless task and, and for sharing your thoughts with us today.
1: Let me also second that sentiment because I do think this was a bold and ambitious uh, program to Go well beyond some of the previous proposals that we've heard. Uh, nothing recently, of course, since the breakdown in relations between Russia and the West. But in the past, you heard things like uh, Russia should join NATO or there should be a, you know, universal free trade agreement across the entire space. So I want to thank you first for that uh, very terrific and innovative—I'm sorry—informative briefing. Once again, I was struck by how much detail was provided in this proposal how much thought has gone into both the substance as well as the mechanisms and processes by which it would be agreed upon and implemented. For uh, someone who's negotiated a lot of agreements, it's fascinating to see how this project, which in many ways resembled a negotiation, was able to reach consensus on so many different issues and come up with creative solutions to difficult problems. Uh, one thing I think would be worth, before we open up the question and answer Q&A from the audience, uh, I want to ask a couple of questions. One thing I think would be helpful to clarify is the main mechanisms by which competition between the West and Russia would be constrained in both the, the security space as well as the economic space. You touched on all of the points, but maybe to provide a little more clarity to to this uh, ha- The the relationship between the norms, the non-poaching agreement, the consultation, uh, before a country, one of the in-between states, could change its current orientation to either go neutral, maybe withdraw from an existing arrangement, or maybe uh, to switch, and and, uh, maybe an in-between country that is not as aligned could then switch to being either aligned with with NATO and the EU or with, with Russia. Uh, th- this comes up in both the economic as well as the security field, so maybe spend a little more time on clarifying how that actually works as a unified solution would be helpful. Thank you. I'm not sure who wants to take that. Maybe uh, Yulia? I still Do want to a couple
2: of things and then pass it on to others. Sounds good. Um, well, thank you guys both for some really uh, interesting questions and comments. Um, uh, Jeff makes a very good point at the start about the, the nature of um, rigidity and fluidity uh, in, uh, in the regional order compared to particularly the 1989-1991 period. Um, if I would say something, which is that uh, the premise of the all three groups was that we need to start where we are. So we did not try to do pie in the sky. Uh, but instead uh, assume that the institutions and institutional memberships as they are today will endure Uh, and that, in fact, uh, that should be respected. Um, The question is what to do about potential future uh, institutional change. Um, And so one of the strengths, I think, of of, uh, a number of the pieces of the proposal is that It does not assume dramatic change. I mean, even on the economic side, we assume that the countries that have signed signed a DCFTA will remain parties to the DCFTA, and the question is about tinkering around the edges, essentially, uh, to uh, facilitate uh, multidirectional trade. Um, Where do we stand on uh, democracy, or so? How does reform fit into all of this? I think is another way of putting this. Jeff's other second point. Uh, it's a very good question. Uh, for reasons that probably are, are a function of the nature of the format of the project, in other words, that everyone had to, to a certain extent, agree on most things, uh, that couldn't, that wasn't going to be front and center. Um, but I would say that nothing in the uh, uh, paper prevents, you know, uh, attempts to facilitate reform in the region, um, and uh, nowhere does it say that because. Uh, state adopts non-aligned status; it therefore, you know, therefore you cannot help it uh, reform and institutionalize its democracy. Uh, quite the opposite, of course, and we have a number of examples in Europe of um, non-aligned states that are uh, well-functioning, institutionalized democracies. Uh, the political change question. So, the the this is a really key point um, because uh, the idea of several pieces of the proposal was to, in fact, be flexible enough to deal with political change in the future. Uh, Precisely for the example, thinking about the example that Jeff mentioned about 2014 uh, Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych uh, and uh, what happens then. So what would be different at least in the, according to the security architecture proposal is that there would be a crisis communication mechanism in place to deal with precisely this set of issues. Um, And so I think that would at least give us a better chance of heading off the kinds of miscommunication and miscalculation that resulted in that year. But more broadly, change is, is not ruled out, but in fact uh, explicitly uh, accepted as possible and you know uh, a potential natural outcome of political developments in the countries of the region. So if a country wants to change its future arrangements, uh, it is welcome to do so. Uh, these are about providing additional options for them. Um, I think if trust were a precondition to to doing anything on this, uh, we would never um, uh, advance because there is, we start from the premise that there is zero trust and that the, uh, and also that you don't really need to trust your um, uh, partner in an international negotiation in order to achieve stability. The US and the Soviet Union did not trust each other. Uh, They were able to find agreements uh, that uh, benefited both sides and arguably the world. I'm thinking of you know arms control or even right. the you Austria State so uh, Fair enough, but not every treaty uh, that was signed between the US and Soviet Union had intrusive verification. Um, I mean the, uh, we could talk about mean in the, in the paper, the Austria State treaty uh, is mentioned as as one example of that. Um, but I'll, I'll let my colleagues uh, follow up
3: uh well there were a lot of points that i would like to comment on comment on but probably there will be more questions from the audience so now i will react only to some uh, aspects so on uh, yalta we know that's well okay grand bargain but uh, on the other um uh, end of the spectrum we have suggestions like uh, common uh, security space from vancouver to vladivostok which is uh, idealistic. So uh, the current uh, proposal that we are discussing is uh, somewhere in the middle between the very geopolitical approaches of division uh, um, of spheres of influence and very idealistic approach that uh, every, everyone should be friends. So that's pretty much realistic. And indeed, uh, trust is not a precondition. We hope that it will be the result of uh, all those communications within the security architecture and uh, economic architecture. Uh, Well, as to the process of change, indeed, so let's take the example of uh, the revolution in uh, Armenia in uh, 2018. Uh, Nikol Pashinyan, before uh, becoming uh, the leader uh, of Armenia, he had very explicit comments that Armenia needs to uh, become the member, probably, well, of the European Union or uh, even the, uh, well, member of NATO. So he was very pro-Western, I would say. Uh, and uh, like a thought exercise, because th- th- that's all about imagining uh, things. Uh, so I- I- if he maintained this position after he really became uh, elected, then it would have created a crisis. And such a mechanism would say that, OK, Armenia, you have uh, this third. Way, if you want to leave the Collective Security Treaty Organization and the Eurasian Economic Union, as you, the leader of Armenia, suggest, then a third way would be an option. You would receive guarantees both from. Uh, Russia and uh, the European Union and the United States, that your uh, non-alignment status will not be compromised because uh, if uh, Armenia leaves all the uh, uh, Russia uh, alliances with uh, Russia, both security and economic, and then switches its foreign policy, uh, then you would imagine uh, that uh, this would... uh, Create a lot of debates about this situation. So, this didn't happen. That's a a, um, thought uh, exercise. Uh, But we understand that that there are a lot of situations uh, like that, and uh, we need to be uh, ready how to discuss uh, these issues. Uh, And uh, I reassure you that, um, uh, well, from the official perspective, Uh, Russia wouldn't be probably happy with uh, such a security. Uh, uh, architecture, because we uh, here in the U.S. we very often get a um, re- comment that, uh, okay, we would give up everything to Russia, Russia would uh, have a right to, to have a veto on the um, decisions made by the in-between countries, and Russia would say that, okay, what why the U.S. would have a veto on the decisions uh, in, of the countries in Eurasia, because there was a question like, where does the U.S. fit in this? The Russian response would be nowhere, <laughs> like why should we have have the U.S. in uh, Eurasia, so you see that, uh, that I really a lot of um, things that, that uh, we d- disagree on, I mean, officially, uh, the governments, but uh, if we want to find an alternative, we have to put aside all those official positions for a moment and uh, try to uh, really find uh, an alternative future and see whether it is feasible or not, so that was the point of the exercise.
1: Anybody else want to add anything to that?
4: Maybe I answer on two points. Uh, first about what you asked about, what is first uh, trust or progress in settlement? I think it's a chicken-egg dilemma. Uh, What's the first? I think it's both in the same time. And by the way, we have a very good example how trust can be generated. Those of you who follow Ukraine on at least on a regular basis uh, know that last year we had a level of trust between Ukraine and Russia uh, below zero. Uh, There was no contacts, no trust, uh, basically nothing. And President Zelensky, who was, uh, uh, but you all know who is President Zelensky, uh, who was elected uh, in April last year, uh, basically had a first uh, task, uh, how to start contacts with with, with Russians based on zero level trust. And there were different uh, proposals. I personally considered he must uh, develop uh, a big peace plan and have it for Ukraine's internal discussion, because peace with Russia is not international issue. It's first of all Ukraine's internal political issue. But uh, he was silent about any strategic vision what to do with Russia. And he decided to do something very different, uh, to make very small steps. First, there was exchange of prisoners. Uh, exchange was which was done on very tough conditions which very few believed uh, our president would do it but he did then uh, Ukraine boats were returned uh, then gas deal which very few believed would ever be uh, concluded uh, was concluded on compromise basis so with small small steps we just see now how uh, trust a little bit is is getting there and generated and trust is basically uh, building blocks of any type of of conflict settlement uh, we are now um, quite confident that there is a permanent channel of communication between ukrainian and russian presidents there are two people who are fully authorized and we don't know what they discuss it's another problem uh, but what is important that this channel is it functions uh, and we at least could expect that certain trust might be built on and it gives certain hope that uh, next uh, normandy four meeting uh, would lead to uh, more significant results and we could see progress in minsk implementation at least uh, we see Uh, even publicly announced hopes that next October we'll have elections in not-controlled territories of Ukraine. So by by these small steps, trust uh, was established, and we see now how every next step helps to strengthen this trust, not undermines. And here I would come to another even more interesting issue. Where is U.S.? Uh, And I must tell, I feel furious uh, discussing about U.S., uh, Uh, policy on ukraine and especially when i hear uh, statements like there is a fight uh, between russia and us uh, over ukraine it's not it does not exist i don't see how us is fighting for ukraine i see how russia is fighting for ukraine It's true but we have in us number 10 maybe 20 well educated trained professionals, diplomats who know what is Ukraine and who care about what is Ukraine. But overall, if you want to know what is Ukraine in U.S. Uh, priorities, it's very advisable to read uh, article in The Atlantic uh, called Obama Doctrine. Uh, your previous president uh, gave a very explicit um, um, uh, quotation uh, what what he thinks about Ukraine in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, where he said that even if Russia twice attacked Ukraine, U.S. would not send its troops to defend Ukraine, which is actually uh, really the frank uh, description of what is U.S. role in Ukraine. I think it's very not sufficient and i think it must be not doubled but four times more than it is now because uh, if you look at the structure of the conflict conflict in ukraine uh, conflict around ukraine conflict between ukraine and russia is multi-layer it of course has internal roots it has ukraine-russian direction but main direction is geopolitical it's why uh, this research was helpful because uh, it's really perceived from russian side as fight between Russia and the West, Russia and U.S. for Ukraine. Uh, But what is lacking here is that U.S. is not fighting (laughs) with Russia for Ukraine. Yes, U.S. is supporting Ukraine's uh, um, um, uh, ambitions to uh, join NATO, but let's be also frank, uh, as long as there is uh, conflict with Russia, Ukraine will not be able to join NATO because of strong... uh, 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 opposition to this uh, uh, issue from a number of NATO member states, European member states. So where U.S. could really play its role is to uh, unlock this problem, problem of security, by providing Ukraine direct or multilateral security guarantees, which would remove our fears of Russian aggressiveness and which would remove an issue of NATO. But for that, there should be a strong political will in Washington, which unfortunately I don't see now. So stronger U.S. engagement, it's one of ultimate. It's one of must elements in settlement of conflicts in, in Ukraine and in the region. Without strong U.S. leadership, credible U.S. leadership, it would be very difficult to imagine any significant progress in uh, conflict settlement. Sorry to be rude.
1: Thank you, Vasil, and to everybody else who contributed. So we're going to open this up for a Q&A from, from the audience. Please raise your hand, wait for the mic. Uh, when you're called, please uh, state your name and your affiliation, and we'd appreciate if you keep it, your comments brief and uh, formulating as a question. So um, let's start with young lady up front and uh, the
6: gentleman here to the left. Hi, good afternoon, thank you very much for your panel. Uh, My name is Emilia, I'm a student from Ukraine studying at American University. Um, I find your report very complex and very controversial at the same time, and um, I'd like to point out a few concerns of mine and then build a question around them. Um, so on page 13 in your document, you are stating that Western leading countries continue to seek NATO and EU membership, even though having a few prospects of ever obtaining it because of the um, because they're struggling to ensure their own security. Um, and in connection with the following, you. You propose to establish a system which seeks to establish a process in which future changes in geopolitical status could occur without fundamentally upsetting the system and creating conflict. And as you have mentioned before, um, it will work only through four interlocking components, but I'd like to specifically pay attention to the third component and define non-aligned status for in-between states, the third way. And by this third way, you mean that status would ensure respect for states' non alignment and preclude future major power conflicts regarding its status and returning for its agreement to seek changes in alignment only in consultation with the permanent participants of the RSC, um, basically with Russia, US, and EU. So, my question is why all of the mentioned above statements go in direct conflict with the following, uh, with the following documents? Um, such as Article 2 of the uh, UN Charter, which is organization is based on sovereign equality of all member states, as well as the Declaration on Principles of International Law, um, which is, I quote from Preamble, the duty not to intervene in matters within the domestic jurisdiction of any members, as well as the principle of sovereign equality of all states. So that is my question. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Um, Yulia, do you want to tackle that one?
2: Why don't we take
6: a couple? Yeah. yeah.
1: All right, let's take uh, one from the, the gentleman there in the left. Yes, you, sir.
7: Uh, you'll be surprised. I'm also from Ukraine. I'm actually one of those 12 who are representing Ukraine here I'm from Ukrainian embassy. Actually, we're 50, but numbers speak for themselves. Anyway, thank you for, the, for your explicit work. And uh, I was just trying to uh, address one issue here. As you um, proposed in the mentioned document, uh, well, basically everything is around Russia being present uh, in the uh, RSC, the uh, Regional Security uh, Consultations. So, um, and I quote, uh, it is said in your document that this is a political commitment, not a legal one. I remember one political commitment that was a Budapest memorandum, where Russia also was part of the uh, security guarantee, and the only country that actually broke that uh, (laughs) political commitment by uh, basically waging a war in my country. And while I strongly support uh, my young calling here, Uh, by the way, thank you for the question. That was explicit. I don't really know that uh, whether that will be a, a good idea to trust Russia. I'm just uh, really curious about the instruments that will um, make the so-called in-between states trust Russia again, because there are so many, uh, so many examples in history where that actually failed. And uh, I'm not so sure about the in-between states, but I'm. Uh, I'm ag- against calling my country and uh, the countries that are in the region post-Soviet because we're not calling America the former uh, England colony, which is also right historically, but probably not accurate in, you know, in the uh, situation nowadays. So I would uh, rather you refer to uh, our countries, the in-between states, as Eastern European. Thank you.
1: Point noted. Let's take one more question and then we'll have our uh, panel respond. How about the lady in the back there next to the camera?
6: Hello, uh, my name is Mariam Grahelti. I work for Voice of America, Georgian service. I would like to ask you, how do you see Russia, Georgian-Russian economic relations when every time, something, every time something happens in Georgia, Russia uses economic sanctions? Uh, AND ALSO IN TERMS OF um, CONFLICT MANAGEMENT, um, WHAT COULD YOU SAY? LIKE WHAT COULD GEORGIA DO ABOUT CONFLICT MANAGEMENT WITH Abkhazia AND THE uh, um, VALLEY REGIONS? AND I'M SURE YOU KNOW THAT BORDERIZATION IS ONGOING PROCESS AND RUSSIAN BORDER IS MOVING FORWARD IN GEORGIA. THANK YOU.
1: THANKS. WE'RE GOING TO GO AHEAD AND LET THE PANEL RESPOND TO THESE. Uh, THE FIRST ONE WAS uh, the third way, is that consistent with the rights of states under prevailing international law to um, orient themselves the way they seem fit? Anybody want to take that one? Or feel free to respond to any of them.
2: Well, um, maybe we should go in reverse order. I don't know if Vasily, you want to go first this time? And if You're you not sure? I
4: can. Are you sure? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> OK, um, I sometimes feel sorry uh, for Sam, because uh, as he said at the beginning, uh, we had three groups. Each group worked in its own atmosphere and logic, and we learned about what other groups prepared only after the text was, was, was read. And uh, you can imagine what I... Um, and Sam was my counterpart, to whom I had to uh, present what I thought about work of other groups. Um, I will not disclose everything, but I, I feel sorry for him to listen to everything what I thought about it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that in Ukraine it will not be accepted. by by anyone. And what you you said, what you said, it just uh, goes without saying that uh, to imagine that someone in Ukraine would accept that there are two two levels of uh, uh, states, one in uh, regional permanent consultations and as permanent participants, and others not, is just on starter. And it's not about actually only Ukraine. UK... Where is UK in the system? UK uh, used to be in EU, so um, you could imagine UK as a member of EU would be there. But now UK is out. So UK together with Ukraine is in between states, UK between uh, US and uh, EU. Uh, so there's plenty of questions about uh, this idea of having big three, US, uh, Russia, and EU discussing in per- on permanent basis uh, regional security issues, and others uh, who may be hurt in case if their interests are on the agenda. And again, the biggest point is not really uh, 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 a new format. Uh, they meet and discuss every time. Recently in Berlin, uh, issue of uh, Libya, they actually they had these uh, consultations. It was what, what they described. Uh, it was a consultation of interested parties about the situation in Libya. It's that nothing limits countries if they want to meet and discuss. The point, which I think again, but they will defend it. It's, 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 uh, I think it would be more adequate if uh, Sam and Julia I would explain what they mean under this big three concept. Idea is here that actually, review of European security architecture, despite its obvious. Uh, Failure of uh, defending Ukraine, failure of Budapest Memorandum, and failure of OSCE to uh, protect Ukraine uh, against Russian uh, invasion is a statement of uh, inability of current European security architecture to fulfill its basic function to protect countries against uh, foreign invasion. Moreover, we are talking about the country which voluntarily denounced uh, nuclear weapon uh, and received in response uh, uh, guarantees from uh, P5 uh, permanent members of Security Council. So uh, is it uh, correct that we have a basic uh, acknowledgement of inability of existing institutions to fulfill their functions and nothing has been done? Is Is it good or not? and we all agree it's not. What to do with this, it's another question, whether we need to establish this format or that format, or maybe it's OSCE which must uh, collect and uh, discuss what to do. Maybe we should start talking uh, uh, about reform of United Nations. Actually, it's UN which was created to protect countries from foreign invasion, and UN failed to do it in case of Ukraine. So maybe we should, we should start from an issue of veto right for some countries, by which misuse this veto right and uh, make impossible for member nations to defend countries which become uh, victim of foreign invasion. Maybe this is uh, an issue we have to discuss. But it's one of many ideas we can we can uh, for hours uh, talk about it. And what I welcome is uh, uh, readiness of my colleagues to put the issue on the table and to acknowledge we must finally start discussing what to do in order to protect countries against their bigger and better armed neighbors, especially those neighbors uh, which are in uh, Security Council with their veto rights and nuclear weapons, if existing institutions do not work? I think it's it's a good attempt, and let's discuss what should we do.
0: Okay, there was a question on Georgian-Russian trade disruptions. well, I think what the economic proposal boils down to, this proposal of multi-directional trade relations, is economic diversification. So I think Georgia is an excellent example showing that it exports goods, such as wine, for example, which are much more competitive on the Russian slash Eurasian economic union markets, simply because they're well-known there and very loved, like wooly wines, Borjomi water, and which I don't often see in shops in the European Union. So of course, trade disruptions happen, but what we have seen gradually since 2012, that Georgia, after bans and trade disruptions, regained this exporting facility to Russia, which is, I think, purely from economic terms, good and beneficial. So the more linkages are forged in terms of those multidirectional trade relations, the more stable countries potentially are, especially if disruptions like this happen. So you see it's a bit more complicated than just kind of putting the blame, okay, this partner keeps on disrupting trade, so we're better on trade with him. Our proposal boils down to the fact that it's still better to kind of explore as many options as you have. So this would be my answer to that one.
5: How do you deal with violations, or how do you deal with, say, a country deciding that it wants to uh, impose sanctions after one of these? So under this scenario, how do you deal with violations of, of these agreements. So say that mm-hmm. you know there is a, a, a trade agreement and, and one country decides that it wants to, say, impose sanctions in violation of, of that agreement because of one reason or another.
0: I, I think mean- this would be an issue for being addressed to the trilateral consultations. We were generally discussing also in other groups that big players cannot be forced to play by the rules, and this is the ultimate limitation of our proposal. But voluntary trilateral consultations can help alleviate some of the problems that can can help bring a violator back to the negotiating table and can help us find a compromise. So that would be one option.
1: Okay, let's take some more questions. Oh, sorry. My team wants to respond further. Excuse me.
3: Okay, uh, so on uh, the question, how can Ukraine trust Russia again generally? So, uh, and just one little disclaimer that I, I, here I don't represent uh, neither Russia officially nor Amgima, that's just my own perspective. So now I will try to give my own uh, vision of how. Uh, this answer uh, can. Uh, this question can be uh, answered. It uh, goes without saying that if I were to represent Russia officially, I would have to disagree with the, a lot of things that Vasil said. But I will not do it uh, now. So, uh, you, uh, Ukraine doesn't trust Russia. The U.S. doesn't trust uh, Russia, but Russia also doesn't trust uh, the West and especially the United States. Why? We have two reasons. One. Uh, is uh, Georgia, 2003, the second is uh, Ukraine, uh, 2014. I mean, Shevardnadze uh, was quite a uh, pro-Western leader, but still he was uh, toppled. So the conclusion taken by the Russian leadership is that, okay, even if you are a pro-Western Uh, government, it doesn't mean anything. You still can be toppled, and the West will support the opposition. The second conclusion, Yanukovych made a deal uh, with the opposition uh, in February uh, 2014. Uh, and uh, the West uh, pledged to guarantee this uh, deal. So I'm now talking about the perception of Russian officials, how they view the situation. And from their perspective, uh, even if you make a deal with the West, there are no guarantees that the West will, uh, in a way, support uh, these deals um, later on. And that's why uh, Russia believes that, okay, uh, the conclusion is, How can you trust the West, especially if we uh, bear in mind the so-called democratic peace theory that democracies do not fight each other, but they can fight non-democracies, like in Iraq in 2003, for example. And uh, Russia is uh, seen by the West as a non-democracy, no matter that we believe that we are a democratic state, if the West believes that. Russia is not a democracy, then Russia can't be attacked at any time. And again, it means that uh, Russian leadership doesn't feel safe. uh, And that's why they're taking all the measures. Are there alternative ways how to react to all those situations? Of course, uh, every situation has uh, different uh, solutions. Uh, But I'm trying to explain you the official logic. Uh, And uh, generally, uh, this leads us to the uh, answer to your question. Uh, actually, we're now in a situation of balance of threats. Like in between countries, uh, they don't want to be uh, the uh, battleground for the major powers who have disputes about regional governance or global governance. Uh, uh, Russia uh, is afraid of interference in uh, domestic affairs, that the West supports the Russian opposition. Uh, And the West, the U.S., is also afraid of the interference in its domestic affairs, like the elections and so on. So everyone is afraid, like both Russia and the West are afraid of the interference in the domestic affairs of each other. And that's why, uh, of course, unfortunately, the nature of the international relations is that legally binding agreements are possible only if major powers uh, commit to them voluntarily. No one can make them uh, really abide by uh, their own agreement. So that's why it's not so important to have legally binding agreements if the political agreements are uh, there. So that's probably the weak. Um, point I I mean that we understand that do you have any better alternative the point of the current discussion is that uh, if you're critical be constructive so please suggest a better alternative So this group spent a lot of time uh, more than a year on discussing that we know uh, most of the counter arguments that you can provide if you can provide a better solution complex solution now no party is happy with the result. I would say, like, neither the U.S. uh, nor uh, Ukraine nor Russia, like, we see the result and say, okay, every country would see uh, a lot of negative points for itself. And the point is that okay l- let's do at least something that discuss i see your point i understand your point but i cannot provide you a solution if uh, all the politicians in the world cannot do that do you expect me to give you the answer
7: i'm not i'm not expecting you to give me any answers um, i'm just uh, the question was so we signed the yeah. sort of a agreement with russia in it that was political mm-hmm. it was already done and now russia broke it and the question was what are the instruments if russia decides to bro- break it again and so
2: we do address uh, explicitly the uh budapest memorandum and the um comp- the, the history of that uh that document and the precisely the problem that you identify and there are attempts to find uh lesson, to to, to uh, extract lessons from that negative experience and the proposal includes a number of things that differentiate it from budapest first of all the form it's the intention is to have it as a un security council resolution as opposed to a set of political commitments uh, to have explicit terms in other words the uh, the the bargain is explicit about uh, non-alignment in return for multilateral security guarantees and to have an exit clause in other words if one party is violating it the other party is explicitly and the other parties are explicitly granted the um uh explicitly uh given the the right to leave so uh but broadly speaking all of that will not uh or none of that will uh, compel uh um russia the u.s to uh you know any major power to dramatically change their policies if they believe that continuing to abide by an agreement is not in their interest International uh, uh, affairs, the history of international politics is riddled with cases when great powers decide one day that an agreement is no longer in their interest and they cease to abide by it. The purpose of the proposal in that part of it is to create the circumstances under which the relative countries believe it to be in their interest to comply with the agreement. So you don't need, there is no policeman that will arrest uh, Russia if it violates an agreement. Um, that's you know the nature of international politics, but it's about creating circumstances under which uh, there will not be incentives to violate agreements uh, as opposed to uh, enforcement by some coercive mechanism which, at least in that group, they could not identify, and I, on that score at least, tend to agree. I would also just add, in terms of sovereign equality, uh, voluntary commitments do not uh, uh, diminish sovereign equality. So, commitments undertaken voluntarily uh, in no way abridge uh, any other rights of states under international law, particularly in the context of informal uh, consultations.
1: Well, I'm afraid our uh, time has elapsed. Um, sorry to the, those who did not get to answer, ask questions, but. Five minutes or so? All right. <laughs> I will relent and I will allow two more questions. <laughs> the gentleman over here in the middle and this gentleman here.
8: Thank you very much. Finally I have been able to <laughs> ask a question. I'm Azad from Embassy of Azerbaijan. My question is with, with regards to uh, points or uh, uh, with regard to the conflict. So that has been mentioned in the report and f- uh, thank you. I would like to thank you for Uh, mentioning this conflict um, uh, as a part of security architecture, addressing security architecture. But my concern is uh, uh, with regard to the focusing only on conflict mitigation or conflict management points, and uh, pain, so-called pain reduction measures, without addressing the core uh, reasons of the conflict. So the thing is uh, special with regard to, um, as Vasile mentioned about um, the people first approach. So in our case, for example, if we don't take into account the interest of IDPs, so uh, people first is completely overlooked. So in conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, we have close to one million IDPs and refugees. And unfortunately, there is nothing about that in the report. And the, there is just a very cursory point with regard to the idps and that's not in the uh, risk reduction or uh, uh, mitigation efforts that's on general conflict resolution points so uh, that a- another point is in our case uh, this kind of uh, risk re- risk reduction measures in a territory ethnically ethnically cleansed cleans territory totally i don't understand how it will be relevant so Uh, if we're talking about the rights of settlers, that's completely a different thing because international humanitarian law doesn't recognize such kind of rights for settlers. So they are not defined as uh, protected persons under international humanitarian law. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you.
1: Next question. The gentleman right up front here.
9: Thank you. My name is Bjorn Fegeber. I'm the political counselor at the Swedish Embassy here in Washington. Um, No, just I think that one, one perspective that has been... So the EU keeps cropping up in in your uh, both in your report and also in in the comments here. Um, my concern is a little bit that the EU is considered as you know being part of the problem here. It is mentioned sort of in passing, uh, together with Russia, um, and you know it's the EU, it's it's uh, Russia um, that have been contributing contributing in equal measure to the problems that we see. And and a case in point is where you write, Samuel, in your, in your introduction that the. Um, the major powers, the European Union, the United States, and Russia have pursued policies toward the region that have contributed to to, to today's disorder and instability, and I I could go on forever, but I I don't feel that that is a fair description of what the EU has been doing, but I would actually, I would ask you to lay out what are the ways in which the European Union um, has actually contributed to to instability and disorder, because uh, someone who's been working on the EU's Eastern policy for uh, uh, I mean, taken together with my service in the Swedish Foreign Ministry for more than a decade, I, I don't really recognize um, that description uh, of the EU as an actor here. And secondly, I mean, you ask the rhetorical question, so... It, I I'm going to have to limit
1: it w- to the one question given the time. Sorry, sir. Oh,
9: right. Thanks. But please tell me, wh- why, why is sticking to the existing order worse, uh, worse than changing the order, as you suggest?
1: Thanks. Um EU or are we treating them fairly in this report number one number two is what about pain reduction measures uh, please
4: in my, in my point, it's very easy to answer. There are not only this, but many other issues which we are not uh, able to cover uh, because of uh, amount of, of, of pages. But issue of IGPs was discussed, and I think we have even IGPs in one of measures we listed. Uh, but certainly, issue which you which you mentioned is important and demands additional attention.
2: Um, uh, of the two questions that were asked in the final uh, remarks there, I would, I would pick the second, uh, given that we don't have time to answer both. Um, the, uh, because I think it is a fundamental one. If you believe that everything is great as far as concerns, the security architecture, the, uh, the state of economic integration in the region, and the regional conflicts, then, you know, this is not the report for you. Um, And uh, I think that the people involved in this project though started from a different premise that actually the situation is pretty bad and getting worse. Uh, That there are uh, not only um, lost opportunities but lost lives and that uh, the, the current dynamic we are on seems likely only to continue to get worse. So at the very least contemplating alternatives to the status quo. Uh, is um, what uh, responsible policy uh, analysts should be doing. That's our job, as opposed to, I think, uh, uh, trying to um, uh, prevent discussion of alternatives to the status quo. Uh, You're, of course, free to disagree. uh, And we welcome uh, suggestions about uh, your own ideas about alternatives. Um, but I think uh, the premise we started from was a different one, that the situation is actually pretty bad and that the costs of doing nothing uh, are going to accumulate over
1: time. Well, that wraps up this event. I want to thank the panelists for a very uh, informative and lively discussion. I want to thank all of you for attending, and please join me in a well-deserved round of applause.
0: Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in
9: next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.